chapter 8. We are in a section in Romans 8, 18 to 25, where Paul makes an opening statement, and then down through the rest of that section, he is building upon and expounding and validating that statement. So let me just begin by reading the 18th verse of the 8th chapter of Romans. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We've talked about this on two Sundays, the past two Sundays, and the idea is this, that a key to you enduring whatever this life brings, the trials, the hardships, the sufferings, that your victory in walking through those faithfully as a good son or daughter of God is going to be in direct relationship to your understanding of the glory that is to come. That's the point. We're going to continue to talk about that today. What we looked at last week was the glory that is awaiting creation, meaning the unreasoning material world, animate and inanimate. We talked about what happened to this world that subjected it to the bondage of corruption and that it is eagerly waiting for the day of glory. So what we're going to talk about this Sunday is specifically about the sons and the daughters of God. It says in verse 21, talking about the final day in Romans 8 there, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Would you just focus in on that last phrase there? That's where we're going to pick up our text this morning. The freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation is longing, Paul said in verse 19, for the sons of God to be revealed. And what specifically is going to be revealed? The answer is right here in verse 21. What's going to be revealed is the freedom of the glory of the children of God on the great and final day. When Christ returns... And specifically what this says is not just that we are going to see His glory. That's certainly included in verse 19 where it says the glory is going to be revealed to us. But it takes it to a new depth here saying that the children of God are not just going to see the glory, that they are going to participate in the glory. They're going to experience the glory. They're going to come into the glory of Christ. In fact, they're going to be possessors of the glory of Christ. The freedom of the glory of the children of God. talk more about that in a minute, but notice here that the emphasis or one of the emphasis Paul is placing on this is not just about the glory that is coming for the children of God, but the revealing of that glory. It apparently is important to God that he put on display 
the glory that he is going to give to every son and daughter of God. He inspired this word to be written to say that not only is he going to glorify the sons and daughters of God on the final day, but he is going to make that glory that he gives to them known to his creation. That is a critical aspect, an important aspect to God. He made that explicit here. Right now, if you're a Christian, if you have committed your life to Christ, you're a son or a daughter of God. But do you look like it? In a sense, we are flying under the radar as far as our physical bodies is concerned. We, just like the rest of humanity, we get sick, our bodies are decaying, we're frail, we have finite minds, we are weak. But one day, we're going to look radically different. One day, there's going to be a revealing of the glory that God gives to the sons and daughters of God that is going to be witnessed by all of His creation. And the Father is excited about that day if you're a son or a daughter of God when He gets to put you on display before creation. He wants the rest of His creation to see the glory that you will receive. So let's talk about that for a minute. What is the glory going to be like? Remember again, Paul said that the key to your success in walking through this life faithfully is to understand, to embrace, to deeply grasp and hold on to the idea of what is coming. So what's the glory going to be like? First of all, there's going to be bodies of glory given to the sons and the daughters of God. The Bible doesn't give us a great deal of information about this, but it paints some broad strokes. And just understanding what it says about those broad strokes, if we really grasp it, is enough to take our breath away. Let me read you one such statement, really, and this is the overarching truth related to the bodies of glory that every son and daughter of God is going to receive. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. If you have your Bibles, would you please open up to that verse? 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Not the Gospel of John, but John's letter right toward the end of the New Testament. John writes this. Beloved, that's referring to those who have placed their faith in Christ, those who are sons and daughters of God. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He, Jesus, appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. If we looked no further than that single statement about our coming glory, that is enough to transcend all verbal description and the parameters of our finite human conception. Do you hear what that says? That we are going to be like 
unto the Lord of glory himself. That when we see him, we will become like him. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if the Bible didn't say that, that would be one of the most outlandish claims that we could ever make. But this is God himself through the inspired word telling us what is going to happen on the final day. Now we have a few snapshots. We're going to run with that thought for a minute that we're going to be like him when he returns because we're going to see him in all of his glory and in that moment we're going to be transformed to be like him. Now let's just talk about what his glory is like. We have a few snapshots in the New Testament of the glory of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up a mountain. And on that mountain, just for a moment, the veil of his humanity was lifted and Peter, James, and John got a glimpse of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, And Jesus was transfigured before them, and His face shone like the sun. Son or a daughter of God, did you hear that? What was His glory like? His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Do you know, many years later, when Peter was writing one of his letters, he looked back to that day and he said, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter was still focused upon that fleeting glimpse of the glory of Jesus that he had there on the mountain. Peter, Peter who had seen him heal the sick and give sight to the blind and cause lame legs to walk. and Peter who saw Jesus walk on the water, turn the water to wine, speak to a storm and command it to be still. Peter, who saw Jesus call the dead back to life outside of Lazarus' tomb. Yet what is on the forefront of Peter's mind as he's writing his letter giving testimony to the truth of the gospel, is he said, I was an eyewitness of his glory. Decades later, it was the driving reality of his life. Paul caught a a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ, of the resurrected Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And the brilliance of that glory blinded him physically. And the brilliance of that glory so penetrated his mind and his heart that it turned Saul, the persecutor, into Paul, the great preacher, the prolific church writer, the great theologian of history. And some three decades later, as he is standing before King Agrippa, do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about the glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ that he saw some 30 years earlier on the road to Damascus. It was still the penetrating, driving reality of his life. And he said to King Agrippa, 
after relating the story of that encounter and that glimpse of Christ's glory, he said, I wasn't disobedient to the heavenly vision. In other words, it has been from that moment forward the driving force of my life, that one glimpse of the glory of Jesus. John got a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. You read about it in the first chapter of his book of Revelation. And the way he described that glimpse was that Jesus' face was shining like the sun in full strength. And it was such an overwhelming Glory that what happened to him, he fell at the feet of Jesus as though dead. Now listen, that's the very same author, the same John that wrote, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Could that really be true? We need to check that with other scriptures. Could it really be that we are going to be like Christ when He returns in glory and glorifies us in His presence? Could that really be? Is that audacious claim a reality? Or are we misusing 1 John chapter 3, verse 2? Well, let's check it with some other scriptures. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 41, talking in parable form about the end of the age and those who are His and what he will do for them. He says in Matthew 13, 41, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That is just like the descriptions of glory that were given to the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, Jesus himself said, that we're going to shine like the sun. Philippians chapter 3, 20 and 21, Paul wrote, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. The overarching consistent truth about the glory that is in store for us is that for sons and daughters of God, as the eldest son, Jesus Christ, has been clothed, so is every son and daughter going to be clothed. That's the truth, the consistent message of the Word of God. And if that doesn't excite anybody in here Check your pulse. I understand the trying to get our head around that like the glory of Jesus. Are you kidding me? But that is exactly what the Scripture says. So that's the overarching idea. But then we are given not a lot, but just a few of the specifics of what our glorified bodies are going to be like. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read 42, 43, and the first half of verse 44. Paul writes, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, referring to those who have placed their faith in Christ. What is sown perishable? is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. 
It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So currently, Paul says, in this life, right here, the sons and daughters of God, they have bodies that are perishable, dishonorable, weak, and natural. But when we're glorified, here's what's going to happen. Our bodies are going to become imperishable. That means they're not going to get old. They're not going to run down. They're not going to wear out. They're not going to break. They're not going to need any replacement parts. Hallelujah for that. Standing here with two titanium knees. No replacement parts in heaven. Our bodies are going to be powerful. I used to think when I was 18 through about 30 that my body was powerful. It is flat falling apart. tried to lift up an empty box yesterday and my elbow is hurting so bad I can hardly use my arm. my, My body is falling apart. It is anything but powerful. But when it's raised, when I am glorified, when you as a son or a daughter of God are glorified, you're gonna be infused with power that you cannot even comprehend in this life. And it's going to be a spiritual body. Now, don't read something in there that is not being said. You see, Scripture says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Paul said there in 1 Corinthians that it is sown a natural body. It's going to be raised a spiritual body. That doesn't mean it's going to be nebulous and nondescript. It's not what it's talking about. It's going to be a real body. It's going to be a concrete, actual, real body. But it's not going to be bound by the limits of flesh and blood. It's going to be suited for a glorified existence. An existence that is eternal so that you have to have a body that is not subjected to the decaying aspects of this world and the downward pull of gravity as the wrinkles begin to build over time. It's not going to be that kind of a body. It's a spiritual body, but it's real. It's actual. It's literal but it's suited for your eternal existence in glory. Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. Another aspect of our glorified bodies. Paul is using an illustration here on a husband's relationship to his wife, and he is basing that upon Christ's relationship to His bride, the church, and what Christ will do for His bride, the church. And here is what He will do. He will sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You're going to have a body of splendor. You're not going to have any spot or any wrinkle, or any blemish. You're going to be holy. You're going to have a body that is perpetually new. 1 Corinthians 15, 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. That means... Death is non-existent. It's going to be eternally, perpetually a new body without any diminishing in any degree of any of its original splendor and power and glory. 
It is going to shine as bright as the sun, but it's never going to burn out like the sun is slowly doing. It's going to be perpetually shining in the brightness of the sun. So we're going to have bodies of glory. Secondly, we're going to have lives of glory. You see, this glory includes a shocking freedom. Look again at verse 21. Paul, writing about the glory, said concerning the sons and daughters of God, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Just a quick comment about that. The glory comes lashed to a freedom. And you could just let your mind run with this. I'll just mention a few. It's freedom from temptation, freedom from base desires, freedom from impure thoughts, freedom from divided interest, ultimately freedom from sin. It's freedom from sickness, freedom from pain, freedom from aging, freedom from injury, freedom from death. It's freedom from heartache, freedom from loneliness, freedom from loss, freedom from abuse, freedom from misunderstanding, freedom from tears, freedom from mourning. It is the glorious freedom of the children of God, a freedom that comes with the glory that we are going to receive. It's going to be an eternal existence of freedom of the glory of the children of God. And then thirdly, are positions of glory. Bodies of glory, lives of glory, and then positions of glory. Here's what I mean. What are we going to do there? Sit on the... Here's the picture, right? Sit on the cloud, little short pudgy with a diaper on playing the harp. No. It's not what I'm going to do there. (laughs) Maybe that's what you want to do there. That's not what I want to do there. Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We're going to inherit a kingdom that God has prepared for us. Now let me just take you back to the beginning to help explain this. Remember Adam and Eve? Remember the creation that God made for Adam and Eve and then He crowned the creation of the material world by making Adam and Eve in His image and then He put them there and said, I made this for you. I made this creation for you. Now what I want you to do is I want you to have dominion over this creation. I want you to rule it you're going to be co-regents on this earth that I have created for you. They had a kingdom and a co-regency on the earth. But they messed that up. But now, the work of Christ, the atoning, redeeming work of Christ is going to absolutely, totally defeat the results of sin. And so that includes a restoration to a kingdom, a kingdom that God has prepared for us in glory. And He's going to give us that kingdom. And what are we going to do? We're going to rule in that kingdom. Just like Adam and Eve were to rule and have dominion on that earthly kingdom In the kingdom that is to come, we are going to rule. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2 opens up. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Verse 3 opens up. Or do you not know that we are to judge angels? You see, we are going to rule with Christ. Not just over 
the physical, material world, we're going to have a rule that encompasses all of God's creation as everything has been made subject to Christ, so Christ is going to make it subject to his sons and his daughters or the sons and daughters of God, his brothers and sisters, joint heirs of himself. That is what is in store for us. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it is that understanding of the coming glory, the deep conviction, not a wishful, oh, man, I hope that's true, as in wishful but maybe not true thinking. No. It is the deep conviction of that absolute and certain reality that is coming for the sons and daughters of God that gave strength down through history to God's children to face whatever came their way in victory, unwavering, unflinching, faithful to the end. That's why Paul opens up in verse 18, by saying, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Now, just test case. Just consider what the conviction and understanding of that coming glory did with the apostles. Who were they? These men that had followed Jesus around. These men that had heard his words and seen his miracles. Well, they deserted him in his hour of need. Fled in fear. They denied him for their own protection. But then... They saw the resurrected Lord of glory. And what did they do? Tradition tells us that 11 of them died unwaveringly, unflinchingly, unwilling to reject the Lord Jesus Christ willing to face whatever hardship, even to the point of brutal death, because they knew about the glory that was coming. They saw that the threats and the sufferings and the persecutions of the present were impotent to do anything to affect them in the long run. And so they saw those persecutions, even horrific in nature, as light and momentary, uncomparable to the glory that they knew without question was going to be theirs. That's the point of Paul's development here. Your understanding of the greatness of the glory that is coming is going to be in direct relationship to your faithful life in the present. Let's move on to verse 23 covered verse 22 last week, verse 23. And verse 22 is talking about the creation groaning, longing for that day. In verse 23 it says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, sons and daughters of God, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Let's jump onto that idea there, first fruits, for a minute. Significant truth included here. 
this idea of first fruits of the Spirit. Paul is writing in the first century there to the church at Rome, and they would have understood this powerful illustration, this powerful phrase. In that agricultural society, the first fruits were a significant point of celebration. The first fruits were meaningful, and they were meaningful at least in three ways. Let me give them to you. First of all, the first fruits were proof of what is already theirs. First fruits are proof for you and I as sons and daughters of God of what is already ours. You see, those who are saved already have the Spirit of God. It's already a fact dwelling in them. The Holy Spirit has already given gifts. The Holy Spirit has already given graces and is developing the character of Christ in the life of the sons and daughters of God. That first fruit is a promise, a proof of what is already there. But that's not all it is. It's a proof of what is yet to come. You see, that's what the first fruits were, like to the Jews. They were the down payment. They were the installment. That's why it was such a moment of celebration. They knew when they harvested the first fruits that it was just a taste of the full harvest that was guaranteed to come. First fruits are the evidence of a greater harvest on the way. Paul said that God has given the Holy Spirit as a pledge, guaranteeing what is to come. Same thing that the first fruits did for them back in that first century. They were the pledge that the full harvest was on the way. The Holy Spirit is that for us. Think about that for a minute. If the Holy Spirit coming to live and dwell in us, the second member of the Trinity, is just the first fruits. You know, the full harvest is like in kind to the first fruits. That means that the Reality of what is coming is God Himself for us, but in far greater measure than we currently experience Him. So the first fruits are the proof of what already exists, the proof of what is yet to come, and then thirdly, the desire for the harvest. You see, that's what first fruits do. They generate the desire for the greater thing. They are like a taste that whets the appetite. You see, the greater your understanding of the glory that is coming, the more excited, the more eager anticipation you are going to have regarding that day. It's going to create an intensity within you for that day. It's going to intensify that eager longing so that you become like the material world that Paul described, that creation that is standing there on tiptoe, looking, leaning, focusing, longing, fixated on the moment of the revelation of the glory that is to come. And so what do those first fruits then cause? Paul writes this. They cause us to groan inwardly. Groan inwardly. That sons and daughters of God groan inwardly. Now I think what Paul is saying here is that this is something that is true of every son and daughter of God. There's an internal groaning. Now, I'm not saying that is in equal degree in all, 
but I believe that the very seed, at least the germ of that groaning, is planted in the heart of the son or daughter of God at salvation. And there are two reasons for our groaning. First one, we've talked about we're we're hindered by this mortal body. This part of our creation has not yet been fully redeemed. Our spirit has, our soul has, but we're still earthbound. Like the eagle wants to soar, but it's still tethered to the earth with the stake of the mortal body driven in deep and we cannot free ourselves and soar to the heights that we want to soar. And so there is a groaning to shed this mortal body that is weak and frail and bent towards sin. So that causes us to groan. But that is not the main reason for our groaning. Clearly, In this text here, it is not the main reason for our groaning. That's the negative aspect of it. The main reason, the primary reason for our groaning is that we have a taste of what is coming because we have the first fruits of the Spirit and that understanding that the Spirit of God is giving us in greater measure of the truth of what is to be ours causes our groaning to intensify. so that this is what is happening. The knowledge of what is coming creates the longing that generates the groaning for a full realization of what is to come. The more you know of the glory that is coming, the more intense your desire for it, the more eager and anticipatory you will be. And notice also that Paul says we groan inwardly. So here, don't don't misunderstand the groan here. It's not Christians walking around looking like they've been sucking on lemons. It's not what it is. Paul is telling us to dump the grump right here. This is something inward. It is this intensity internally longing for the realization because we have had the first fruits, we've tasted the harvest, we've had a little bite of the divine meal and we are longing to sit down and be fully satisfied at the banquet table. You see... Please try to follow this because I so clearly believe this is the direct connection with the line of thought in Romans 8. Remember, what is Romans 8 about? Romans 8 is about the security of the believer, the full, final, eternal salvation of the believer that he is backing up. He stated it, verse 1, no condemnation, no condemnation now or ever for those who are in Christ. And he has been backing up that truth all the way down through this chapter, he will continue to do so. And right here in this verse, what he's telling us is that the groaning is a result of the certainty that we are going to be glorified. It is the reason that we are certain that we intensely groan. If it was just wishful thinking, if that's how we understood the hope here, like, oh man, I sure hope that happens and I'm not wrong, that is absolutely a misuse of the concept of this hope that the believer has, of the glory that is to come. It is a certain hope. It is hope because it is not yet seen, verse 24, verse 25, but it is hope that we know that we know, that we know is coming. So that 
the groaning that is generated as a result of that hope is a part of the proof of the security of the believer. It is the byproduct of the absolute certainty that the son and the daughter of God is going to at the final day when Christ returns be ushered into a state of glory where he becomes or she becomes like the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul then says that we groan as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, this could be a little confusing because just a few verses earlier I preached at least one, maybe a part of two sermons about adoption that is a current reality for every son and daughter of God. So why then does Paul say here, and that's what Paul had said earlier, but why does he say here that our adoption as sons is the redemption of our bodies, talking about a future date, a date at the end of time when Christ returns. How can it be both a current reality in the present and something that is not yet here now but will only come in the future? Is Scripture contradicting itself? Not at all. Paul is writing here to the church at Rome to a people with customs, to a people with a language and aspects of their life that meant something related to that language. And a Roman adoption had two aspects to it. A Roman adoption had a personal aspect and a public aspect that happened at two different times. The first The private aspect of adoption was one in which the individual was taken, chosen, accepted by the new family, taken into that family, and made a part of that family. That was the private aspect, the personal aspect of adoption. But second to that, was a day in the future in which there was a public ceremony held. A very important public ceremony where it was openly displayed in great pomp and circumstance that this individual was accepted by this father, by this family, and given the full rights of sonship or daughtership given an inheritance with that family. Now think about that related to the reality of the Christian life. At the moment of your salvation, you were adopted in a private ceremony where the Father chose you, where the Father selected you, where the Father bought you and brought you into his family where the Spirit of God did the work of baptizing you at that moment into Jesus Christ so that you became a son or a daughter of God, a brother of Christ, a joint heir with Christ. But that's the private. There's also going to be a public ceremony. There's going to be a time where the Father, in great pomp and circumstance, in a great revelation, in a very public ceremony between, in front of the creation, the material earth, in front of the human race, in front of the angelic beings and the demonic beings where He is going to show that you are in fact His son or His daughter in a great revealing. And how is he going to do that? He's going to actually give you the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ to be yours. You're going to come into it. You're going to experience it. You're going to possess it. And it's going to be yours throughout all of eternity. 
That's what's meant by the, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're going to leave this mortal shell behind. The tether that keeps us earthbound is going to be cut. That which keeps us in bondage to sin is going to be broken. And we're going to be freed from the perishable, mortal, weak, frail body. And our redeemed spirit and our redeemed soul is going to be united to a redeemed body. First Thessalonians 4, 15 to 18. I'm not sure that we have this one on the screen. Let me just read it for you. Paul writes, For this we declare to you by word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, who've died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Church, are you encouraged? Church, are you encouraged? You see... If you have died physically when Christ returns, the elements that comprised your physical body, whether they be in a coffin, whether they be in the depths of the sea, whether they have been cremated and evaporated into the atmosphere, the all-powerful God is going to take those elements and He is going to transform them into an imperishable, immortal, glorified, spiritual body that is given to your spirit and your soul. And if you are still alive physically when Jesus Christ returns... Your frail human body in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, is going to be transformed into this body of glory that is like unto the Lord Jesus Christ, shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. And all of creation is going to witness that. It's going to be revealed to them even, and I would say particularly, to Satan and his demonic forces. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God is going to put us on show. We are going to be the proof of the manifold wisdom of God to the heavenly beings, those in heaven with God as ministering angels and those fallen angels who are the workers of iniquity. Now consider why that's so powerful. Because in our glorified state, our lives are going to be such an indescribable, powerful testimony of the manifold wisdom of God and of His glory that He could take such a wreck and make it into something of such glory. And all of heaven's beings are going to be in awe of what God has done. So let me close with this. Should be the point of application. True Christianity has its eye not on the earth, not on things seen, but on things unseen. That's the point of Paul here. Yes, 
He says, I know you're walking through difficulties right now, but the reality is, the truth is, the power is in a gaze that is fixed upon heavenly things that'll give you power to walk through the earthly things. That's where Christianity's affections will be set. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Sounds a lot like Romans 8, 18. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So here's the question in closing. Personal evaluation. What are you groaning for? That's the diagnostic question we can take from the truth of what Paul is saying here. What are you groaning for? Do you know everybody groans for something? We either groan for material possessions, for money, or power, or popularity, fame. Or we groan because of sufferings and because of difficulties and because of hardships. But what Paul is getting at here is that what the believer should be groaning for is glory. What should be the focus of the sons and daughters of God is the greatness of the glory that is to come. And you and I should be regularly growing in an understanding and an unfolding revelation of that glory because that is what is going to put an anchor into our heart. That's what's going to cause the hope to burn bright and unwavering in our hearts. That's what's going to cause us to walk through whatever the world brings with an undiminishing joy because we know the glory that is to come. So what are you groaning for? You groan for what you set your eyes on. What are you setting your eyes on? Are you walking through this earth as a child of the king, head down, untarnishable things? Or are you walking through this life head up, transfixed by the greatness of the glory that is awaiting you so that that picture has an increasing draw and a corresponding eager longing that is intensifying in your life. Please stand. Let's pray, Father. Lord, I know how you are convicting me of this reality. Thank you for how practical your word is intending to help us day in and day out with the realities of walking on this broken planet. Forgive me, Lord, for a downward vision. Pray for myself and for this body that the reality of the glory that is to come for every son and every daughter of God would be growing the revelation would be coming clearer, that the beauty would be coming into focus more and more. And that out of that, 
would come this eager groaning that keeps our head up, our feet straight, our hearts true, and our hands busy serving you faithfully until that great and glorious day. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.